Elijah in this chapter is going to address these false prophets who have led the children of Israel into false worship, into idolatry. Elijah wants to win these Hebrew people back to the worship of the one true God. And to do so, he's going to have to remove the priests from the land. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a biographical study of the prophet Elijah, and today we begin one of the most exciting accounts in the entire Bible. Our message is from 1 Kings 18 and is titled, The Great Showdown. Few historical narratives better show the triumph of good over evil, of God over the devil, than this encounter between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Let's join Dr. Brogy as he recounts what we've studied so far and cracks the book on Elijah's meeting with Obadiah. Would you take your Bibles, please, this morning and turn to the book of 1 Kings. If you're new to the Bible, just find the Psalms. It's about dead center. And then scan to the left. And right before 1 and 2 Chronicles, you will come to 1 and 2 Kings. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, we have been in a new series on the life and times of Elijah the prophet. This is the third of potentially 10 messages I'm going to give Elijah was a man who lived in very, very difficult times, much like the times that we are living. And the Holy Spirit loves to use the lives of a godly individual to challenge us to holy living, to believe God the way he believed God. And Elijah was a man who dared to trust God in the day in which he lived. Now, if you've been saved, then you know that walking with God is really the most exciting and the most rewarding of all experiences on earth. But it also can be the most challenging, especially if you are living in evil, troubled days of pestilence like Elijah the prophet lived. And so when you study the life of Elijah, this great man of God, what I love about him is his integrity. There's not a shred of phoniness in his life. He is bleeding through with a righteous, holy, zealous heart for the things of God. And there's much that we can learn from Elijah's walk that we might walk in the same way. He ministered, as we've studied in the first two messages, during the time of the kings. And he was not afraid to confront the most wicked and evil king probably in all of Israel's history. And I suppose there's no more dramatic confrontation than the one we find here in 1 Kings 18. There are two groups of people. One are a group of false prophets who shout, Baal is God. And then there's a group of one, Elijah, who says, Jehovah is God. And it's a very dramatic scene, a very dramatic uh, picture. I thought about how I might title this sermon, maybe the Battle of the Gods or God versus Baal, or will the real God please stand up? And I hope someday to do a series, maybe on Wednesday night, on the great chapters in the Bible. And if I were to choose one, this would certainly be in that series. It's one of the few places in the Bible where there's a great showdown between the God of heaven and the idols of man on the earth. And what we find here is a fight to the finish. And of course, God is the winner. It's one of the most interesting and fascinating passages in the whole Old Testament. But why this great showdown? 
had they not had enough drought for three and a half years? Why not just bring the rain? Well, I, I think God has a reason. You know, the scripture says that these false prophets were raising up a false god by the name of Baal. Now, we know, as Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, we know there is no god but one, he said in 1 Corinthians 8, 4. There's only one in true there's only one true God, and God in a very extreme and dramatic way wants to brand that truth into the hearts and the minds of the people of Israel who are being influenced by these pagan priests. And so publicly, decisively, without question, a national primetime viewing, the people of Israel are going to come to grips in what I've called this morning the Great Showdown. Now, Elijah has just been told by Obadiah that he is, um, that Ahab is looking for him. And Elijah wants Obadiah to tell Ahab that he wants to meet with him. And so with that said, I want to pick it up in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 16. I hope you bring a Bible to the place where you're worshiping this morning. I hope you have one in your laps. I promise you'll get 50% more out of any sermon I preach if you have a copy of the Word of God. 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning now in verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? He said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen, let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood and put no fire under it, and I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood, and I will not put a fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people said, that is a good idea. Now, for many who are walking into this text of Scripture cold, let me remind you of the background. There's a confrontation that we are introduced to in 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1. This is where it originates. We're told, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Elijah, a man of courage, a man of conviction, goes and confronts this wicked king Ahab with this statement. And by divine commentary given by both the Lord Jesus and the Apostle James in the New Testament, we know that this drought lasted for three and one half years. And so King Ahab is after Elijah, no doubt because he wants Elijah to retract the prophecy that he has made. But God sends his prophet into hiding. In our first message, we saw him by the brook Cherith, 
where God provided for him by the ravens that brought him food. And then God moved him after the brook dried up to the town of Zarephath, a widow's home, where the bag of flour and the jar of oil never ran dry. And that brought us to this scene in chapter 18 and verse 1, where things dramatically change. Again, notice, it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, that is in the third year of his residence in Zarephath, saying, go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. Now, earlier, God said, go hide yourself. But now God says, go show yourself. Earlier, God said there would be a drought. Now God says, I'm going to send rain. And so the training time is over. Elijah, at least for the moment, through the experiences that he has had, is able and ready to believe God for some supernatural things. God is ready for his prophet to go public again. Look at verse 2. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. It's especially severe in Samaria. I take it that God allowed every brook, every river, every spring, every well to dry up there. Why Samaria? Because God was obviously directing the drought in its most severe expression to the place, the capital of Baal worship, where Ahab and Jezebel lived. God hit Samaria, the capital city, if you remember, of the northern kingdom at this time. He hits them the hardest because that's where the king's palace is. As you can see on this map, Samaria is about 40 miles southeast of Mount Carmel, and it's a long way from Zarephath, so it's about a 90-mile walk for Elijah, but he's no wimp. He makes the long walk through some very difficult terrain, and uh, from Zarephath, he, he meets Ahab down south in Samaria, and we're told here in verse 3, Ahab called Obadiah, who is over the household. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Obadiah is a believer, and by the way, he's not the same Obadiah that has a book that bears his name in the New Testament. A true man of God who fears God, and if a person really fears God, then it's going to express itself in some kind of a change in his life. And so verse four indicates, for when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. So he hides the prophets of God at great risk, not just in terms of the risk of his job, but the risk of his very life. Obadiah works for King Ahab, but he lives for the one true God. He has a secular job, but he has a spiritual life. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with being in politics if you're representing the Lord God in the political realm. But it's a bad place to be if you don't stand up for the Lord. And sometimes God confronts evil with an in-your-face kind of preacher like Elijah, or sometimes he does it through subversion through a man like Obadiah. Now, it's obvious that these two men are dramatically different in personality and in ministry, but no less important. Elijah's ministry is very public. It's very confrontational, whereas Obadiah's ministry is quiet. It's a behind-the-scenes kind of thing. But both men are functioning faithfully in the place in which God has called them. May I remind you that the Bible never tells us that there's only one kind of faithful servant. 
Paul said to the Corinthians in chapter 12 of his first letter, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, and there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. So the Bible never demands that you be an Elijah kind of clone. Faith is not so dull that it only comes in one flavor. There are many, many, many different kinds of servants today in the body of Christ as in this great day when Israel was confronted by evil, but some people really distinguish themselves. God doesn't call you to the kind of work, say, that Elijah does. By the way, miracles were never consistent all the way through the scriptures. These fake, phony evangelists of our day will try to convince you that they are true men of God because they can do the supernatural. Some who claim everything from raising the dead to growing limbs to all kinds of things. But miracles have never been continuous through biblical history. It's only on the great ganglions of uh, change that God will bring them about. And hundreds of years had gone by since the first cluster of miracles came through Moses and then for a short time through Joshua and now through Elijah and then his protege, Elisha, who will follow after him. So God doesn't call us all to the same kind of great works and miracles that this man does. But he calls us all to good works. We are to manifest the new life in Christ. God has created you in Christ Jesus onto good works. The scripture says you're not saved by works, but you're saved for good works. So God doesn't call you to a flamboyant ministry per se, but he calls you to a faithful ministry. Look now at verse 5. Look what we read. Then Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water into all the valleys. Perhaps we will find grass and keep the horses and mules alive and not have to kill some of the cattle. I mean, what a contrast between Ahab and Obadiah. Ahab wants to save the cattle. Obadiah wants to save the prophets. And I suppose it's not much different today. There are people who want to save the whales, but at the same time, they want to kill the babies. Here's this king who should have been searching for forgiveness, but instead he's foraging around for food. He should have been looking for God, but instead he's looking for grass. Furthermore, notice here in verse 6, so they divided the land between them to survey it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. Things are so bad, the king himself, he's involved in surveying the problem. And when Elijah's path suddenly intersects with the path of Obadiah, this king's right-hand man, I want you to notice from verse 7 how Obadiah providentially in God's perfect time has this appointment with God's prophet, we're told. Now, as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him, and he recognized him and fell on his face and said, "'Is this you, Elijah, my master?' Remember, Elijah is a wanted man in Israel, and Obadiah can hardly believe that he has found Elijah. He falls on his face out of respect for God's man. He bows down, too, out of astonishment, and he asks, is this you, Elijah, my master? Now, notice Elijah's response here in verse 8. He said to him, it is I. Go say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. Elijah is wanting to speak with Ahab. Ask Obadiah, go Obadiah and announce 
myself to, to this king. But Obadiah, he's scared spitless. He's afraid what could happen. He's afraid that just as suddenly as this prophet appears and then disappears, that he could be gone again. He fears that he'll, he fears that he'll announce Elijah to the king, and then when Ahab goes to meet him, that God will spirit him away again. So Obadiah, he's afraid of being executed for having a no-show prophet. Look what we read beginning now in verse 9. He said, what sin have I committed that you are giving your servant into the hand of Ahab to put me to death? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master is not sent to search for you. And when they said he is not here, he made the kingdom or nation swear that they could not find you. And now you're saying, go say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. It will come about when I leave you that the spirit of the Lord will carry you where I do not know. So when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me, although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Obadiah is saying to God's man who comes and goes ever so quickly, you mean you're actually going to send me to wait while you wait right here to go get Ahab the king. And then when I bring him back and you're not here, ah, oh, shucks, Ahab, he was here an hour ago, but now he's gone. Elijah, he'll cut my head off. He'll execute me. So beginning in verse 13, Obadiah reminds Elijah that his own word can be trusted. Why? Because like you, Elijah, I too fear the living God. Notice, has it not been told to my master what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, that I hid a hundred prophets of the Lord by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water? In other words, I don't, I don't need this kind of treatment. I'm faithful and fear, God-fearing like you, Elijah. Don't send me to get Ahab, and then when I bring him, you're not here. And now you're saying, go say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. He will then kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. Elijah was confident that God could handle all the physical arrangements. He had shown himself faithful at the brook Cherith and then with the widow in Zarephath. Now that's the backdrop for what we're going to examine today where the prophets of Baal are confronted with the one true prophet of God. There on your outline, just three simple points. It begins with the challenge. It begins with the challenge. We're told here in verse 16, so Abadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Now I'm sure that Ahab, had made, as he made his way through these rotting, stinking, drought-starved cattle, as he goes to meet Elijah with the stench of death in the air everywhere he goes. He's eager to see this prophet face to face. Remember, this has been going on for three and a half years. And look what happens when they finally meet, verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is this you, you troubler of Israel? The parallel, parallel expression in English might be, is this you, you snake in the grass? In fact, the, the form of this Hebrew word, ashkub, translated here, troubler, is a word that literally means a viper, an asp, or a snake. Ahab views Elijah as a poisonous snake in hiding. 
And he's blinded by his own sin such that he blames Elijah, saying, Elijah, you've made life in Israel absolutely miserable. Look at what you've done. And so Elijah, as best he is able, wants to remove the blinders from Ahab's eyes. And I love his response. It's equal to the occasion. He reminds me of Nathan the prophet who gets right in the face of King David and points his finger and says, no, David, you are the man. Look, look at verse 18. He said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's houses have because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. You see what this verse is saying? Don't blame me for what's happened. God's brought the drought on Israel because of people like you. Your father was a troublemaker. Your whole house is full of troublemakers. Don't blame the preacher, Ahab. You are the problem. Blame yourself. And the point of rub, according to what the prophet says, is between Baal worship and the commandments of the Lord. I love this guy. He doesn't mince words. He just says it like it is. And so now Elijah issues a challenge. And by the way, as you read through the rest of this chapter, there's no question as to who is in charge. He doesn't really deal with Ahab because Elijah knows that Ahab is a pawn. He's a pawn in the hand of Jezebel, and Jezebel is a pawn in the hand of Satan who instigated and created Baal worship and idolatry. And so this spiritual conflict is critical because the nation of Israel and their spiritual vitality is at stake. So he speaks, as you look through the text, eight different times, and every time he speaks, Elijah takes the initiative. Every time he speaks, he gives a command. And I am reminded from this man's life that when our lives are clean, that there's a confidence, there's a courage that God is able to put in a clean heart, and God will give you the courage of your convictions to carry out his will. So Elijah's on the offense. Why? Because he knows that he's right. He knew where he stood. There's no insecurity in this man's heart. Now in verse 19, he issues the first command in this, the great showdown. Notice, now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, or Carmel if you prefer, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. You can almost feel the electricity in the air. This is a challenge, and everyone loves a challenge. And so all Israel gathers up there on top of Mount Carmel. By the thousands, they stream up that mountain, which you have been, if you've been there, and many of you have been there with me, it has a commanding view of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, it's interesting to note the place that Elijah has selected. Mount Carmel is to Baal worship what Mount Calvary is to Christianity. Mount Carmel was the most sacred of all the Baal shrines because they believed that Baal literally dwelled on that mountain. Now, please notice the odds that are outlined for us in this verse. There are 450 prophets of Baal, and there are 400 prophets of the Asherah. Asherah was the female deity, supposedly Baal's girlfriend. And so these prophets are said to eat, notice, at Jezebel's table. She's a very beautiful woman, but a very wicked woman. She's helped financing, underwriting this demon-inspired worship. 
And her name today is synonymous with a shameless, aggressive, seductive woman. And so millennia later, we speak of a Jezebel kind of woman. But don't miss the point. Do you see how bold he is? He's saying, you get your 850 prophets who serve this so-called God Baal, and we'll meet at his place of worship there on Mount Carmel. I'll meet you on your own turf which obviously would have pleased Ahab because he had, in essence, the distinct advantage of being on his home turf. So verse 20 tells us, So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. There are two groups. The sons of Israel or the Jewish people who represent the ten northern tribes. And then there are the false prophets. Now hold that thought in your mind. It's very important to understand the conclusion of the entire narrative. Elijah in this chapter is going to address these false prophets who have led the children of Israel into false worship, into idolatry. Elijah wants to win these Hebrew people back to the worship of the one true God. And to do so, he's going to have to remove the priests from the land. So he begins by addressing the people and not the pagan priests. The priests are hardcore apostates. They have already made their decision. Their destiny is sealed, and you can reach a point in your life where your destiny can be sealed. Jesus in John 12 spoke of those men who had had light, but they did not respond to the light, and he warned them if they would not soon respond that darkness would overtake them. And then he said directly to some of the leaders in Israel that they could not believe for the simple reason that they would not believe. There is a line known only to God that you can cross where you cannot believe for the simple reason that you would not believe. And that's where these men are. But the people are undecided. And so here is Elijah, and he begins by preaching a short, clear, and concise sermon. Look at verse 21. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? The Hebrew text literally reads, if you have the NASB with marginal notes and you need a copy like that, it will be very helpful to your study of Scripture if you don't read Hebrew. How long will you limp on between two divided opinions? Elijah is saying, How long are you going to continue on the broad road? How long will it be before you get on the straight and narrow? How long will you limp between going back and forth? How long are you going to sit on the proverbial fence? He accuses them of the sin of indecisiveness. They're at a fork in the road. And he's telling them you need to make a decision. Elijah was a righteous man, sold out to the living God. There was no uncertainty in this man's testimony. And tomorrow we'll see how Elijah's commitment will be rewarded. To listen again to today's message, The Great Showdown, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program ELI3. We're making plans for two trips to Israel this year, one at the end of September and the other in the middle of October. 
Join Dr. Brogy as he brings the Bible to life with informative accounts of various places you may have only read about. You'll travel to Mount Carmel, Caesarea, Nazareth, Galilee. You can be baptized in the Jordan River and much, much more. Find out more at stsisraeltour.com and make plans now as our June 29th deadline is rapidly approaching. Tomorrow we look at the great showdown between God and Baal. Join us then as we continue our study of Elijah and search the scriptures.